Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. Good morning, I'm Katie Eller, I'm one of the Cotswold Women Shepherds, and I'm going to read today's passage, which is the long one, so get ready. Uh, Mark 7, uh, verses 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is corbain, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things that you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, Foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Thanks, Katie. Um, I asked Katie to read scripture on Wednesday, and I got her to agree to it before I actually told her what she was going to be reading. So if you're wondering why anybody would agree to reading that many verses, um, she didn't know what she was getting herself into, but did a great job. Good morning. My name is Gordon Fleming. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new here, uh, you've probably never seen me up here. Um, I haven't been up here in probably four months. Uh, my family is going through a very hard season, and um, part of that has been for me to step back for a time uh, from preaching as much. But I do want to tell you thank you for how you've loved us and cared for our family. We have learned so much about care and compassion through you, and so I'm really grateful to be a part of this community, and so thank you for that. Um, I want to pray for us, and then I want to uh, consider that very long passage together, and so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, can learn so much from this passage, and we're going to learn a lot today. Um, We're going to learn about heart change, real lasting heart change. 
something that at the end of the day all of us need on some level. There's things about us that we want to change. There's things about us that we don't like to do. As Paul said, things that we do that we don't want to do, things that we don't do that we would like to do. And oftentimes we wonder, as Paul did, who can rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Um, Lord, thank you that you came and brought about real change. Um, Father, I pray that you would still our hearts this morning as we hear from you. Lord, I know we walk in here uh, feeling different things, joy, sadness, confusion, anger. Um, Lord, I pray that your gospel would break through wherever we are. Um, Lord, and it would change us um, for our good and for your glory. Um, Lord, thank you that you are active all throughout the world in places like Japan, the Bahamas, the Dominican Republic, Uganda, um, all these different places that we um, have the opportunity to partner with. Lord, I pray that you would just bless these ministries and grow these ministries so that the good news of your gospel can go forward. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, as Katie read, um, we are now in chapter 7 in our sermon series on the book of Mark. We are building towards the climax of the book, which will happen at the end of chapter 8, where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, a long-awaited king, the Messiah. And we're going to notice something this morning, really for the first time, and it's going to continue throughout the remainder of the book, that there is an intensity that is building. In chapter 7 this morning, we have Jesus' first significant altercation with the Pharisees. So the Pharisees and the scribes have already determined that they do not like Jesus, and they want to get rid of him because of his growing popularity. And this morning, we're going to see for really the first time, Jesus begins to go after the Pharisees. And this is a dynamic that's going to remain in play until Jesus accomplishes the very thing that he came to this earth to do. So with that being said, I want to start us with a question this morning. What did Jesus come to do? Why did he come? Think about it. I could go around this room and I could ask each and every one of you, why did Jesus come? And I would get a myriad of answers. Some may say he came to be a model of self-sacrifice and love. Some may say, well, he came to save me and tell me how to get to heaven. Some may say to give us happiness or love. And some may say, well, he came to die. But I think the Apostle John sums up well the mission statement of Jesus when he said this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And I love what the angel tells Joseph even before Jesus was born. He said this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil in the hearts of his people, to save and rescue his people from the sin that the serpent brought into the Garden of Eden and into the world, but not only that, to redeem all of God's creation. And we've seen this week after week, Jesus healing, Jesus resurrecting the dead, Jesus calming storms, whether it's in nature or in the hearts of people. We've seen him cast out demons. Each week we have seen Jesus go out of his way to destroy the works of the devil, devil, little by little, erasing the stain of sin that plagues all of creation. And this morning we're going to see him continue to do the same thing. But we're going to see him specifically addressing the stain of our hearts. The brokenness and the shame that Adam and Eve brought into the Garden of Eden and into the hearts of humanity. And not only this, but we're going to see in this passage that it is ultimately about how one changes. 
how one experiences real lasting change in their lives, which if you think about it, is one of the most important things that we can ever know. And so that being said, this passage is a real gift to all of us. So let's jump in and see what's going on. So in verse 1, as I mentioned, we encounter again the Pharisees and the scribes. And these were the religious leaders in Jerusalem at the time. And Jesus sums them up well in verse 6 when he says, You hypocrites. You see all throughout the Gospels that Jesus reserved his harshest treatment for the Pharisees and the scribes. And he tells us why in Matthew's Gospel. This is what he said. And Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. So that last sentence doesn't really add anything. I just like saying phylacteries and fringes. I just think they're kind of fun words. But what Jesus is saying is that Jesus, um, he says they tie up burdens on people's shoulders and they do everything for show. Later in Matthew, he called them serpents, just like Satan in the Garden of Eden. He called them a brood of vipers or the spawn of Satan, which is super harsh. And all throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus constantly at opposition with this group. But this morning we actually see them agree on something. And it's the very thing that I stated earlier, that there is this stain in the heart of humanity, that we are defiled and it touches everything. But the problem and the disagreement is they disagree on how to get rid of it. And so I want us to take a look at a few things this morning specifically. First, I want us to look at what they agree on. And then I want us to look at what they disagree on. And then lastly, I want to look at how real change comes about in our lives. What do we do with the sin, the stain that we have? And so let's look at our first point where both parties agree. So reading verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders but eat with defiled hands? All right, what's going on here? The Pharisees are referring to the cleanliness laws in the Old Testament, and they were given to God's people to show them and remind them that they are unclean before a clean, perfect, and holy God. So according to these laws, if you touched a dead animal or a human, or if you had a skin disease, or if you came into contact with mildew, or if you touched meat or ate meat that was considered unclean, then you would be considered impure, defiled, stained, and unclean. You were ritually ritually unclean, so that would mean that you could not go and worship your God in the temple with your people, um, with your community. Now, this may seem a little arcane and a a bit weird to us, but it's not as odd as it first comes across if you think about it. For example, if you're going to meet with somebody that you hold uh, in an important place, that they're particularly important to you, let's say it's a big date or it's a job interview, what do you do? Well, you shower, you brush your teeth, you brush your hair. And why is that? Because you want to get rid of the uncleanness. You don't want a speck or a stain on you. You don't want to stink. Now, what's happening here is more than that, but essentially and basically it's the same idea. Spiritually, morally, unless you're clean, you can't be in the presence of a perfect and holy God. 
So the Pharisees knew that they were unholy before a holy God, and Jesus could not have agreed more. He said himself in verse 14, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside of a person that going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile defile him. Jesus says, hey, look, make no mistake, let's be clear. You are defiled. People are indeed unclean in the eyes of a clean and holy God. Listen to what the apostle said, the apostle Paul said in Romans 1, starting in verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, if we have the courage, we can admit that this is pretty true of our hearts. Now, before anybody gets offended, let me ask you this. Have you ever been envious? Have you ever told a lie? Are you ever argumentative? Have you ever gossiped? Have you ever boasted or been arrogant? Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Foolish, faithless, heartless. Well, now you may say, well, hold on, Gordon. I see one there I've never done. Murder, never done it. Well, we're not off the hook yet. Because Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, if you have ever hurted anyone in your heart, you are guilty of murder. So how are we doing with the list? I'm not doing so great. Now, you may be sitting there saying, well, hey, look, I don't really buy into this notion of sin. I don't believe in judgment or some absolute truth that needs to be believed. But then let me ask you this. Why do so many of us in this room live with an underlying sense of guilt or shame over the things that we have done? Most, if not all of us in this room would be honest and admit at the end of the day we feel like something is wrong with us. That if we were examined closely, if everybody knew what we knew about ourselves, we would be rejected. A few weeks ago I came across a psalm, it was actually Psalm 7, where David was praying to God that God would deal with him according to his righteousness, that he would judge him according to his integrity. And it got me thinking, do I really want to pray that prayer? Do I want God to judge me according to my righteousness or my integrity? Not really. That really scares me because I know my heart. I know it can be so selfish. I know I can be so sinful. I know my heart can be dark. I can be so arrogant and manipulative. Just ask my wife and kids. And having to answer and bear the weight of my sin's consequences is terrifying. So then what do we do with this? When confronted with this reality, what do we do about it? Well, we try to clean ourselves up. We try to change, to change our wants, our desires, our behaviors, We try to stop doing the things we hate and start doing the things we love. We try to be more honest or less angry or more patient or a better parent. And we really go about it a couple of different ways. And this is what we're going to look at for the remainder of our time together. First, we're going to see how the Pharisees attempt to bring about change in their life. And this is what we default to. And this is the second point. And then in our final point, we're going to see how Jesus tells us that how real change comes about. And so to start point number two, I want to actually look at Matthew's gospel account of this passage. And I want to see specifically something that the disciples say. 
And this is in chapter 15, starting in verse 10. And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth of a person that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? So Jesus says, It's not something from outside of you that defiles you. It's something inside of you that defiles you. And the Pharisees got angry. Well, why is that? Because if you know anything about the Pharisees, they appeared to be the best of the best. These were the ones from outward appearances looked to be the religious rock stars of the time. They knew scripture better than anyone. They fasted more than anyone. They prayed more and more loudly than anyone. They were the rabbis. Remember phylacteries and fringes. They looked the part, which maybe made them the most dangerous of anyone because Jesus looked at their hearts and he knew that they were dead. Somebody, maybe I've mentioned here before, Dane Ortland wrote a book called Deeper, not gentle and lowly, but he described the Pharisees this way. He said, think of how we grow physically. I don't ask my six-year-old daughter, Chloe, to take her lunch and smear it all over her body. I tell her to eat it. The food needs to get inside of her, not remain on the outside. One of the greatest mistakes made generation after generation through church history is to slather rules onto our behavior and think that external behavior is what fosters or even reflects vital spiritual growth. It is the mistake of the Pharisees who clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. They are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So sadly, I can really resonate with this. Um, this is absolutely my story. I grew up in a Christian home. I've been in the church all of my life. As a kid, I knew how to look the part. I would go to church. I would go to Sunday school. I would go to youth group. I didn't drink, smoke, chew, or go with, with girls that do. I was the president of FCA. I would read my Bible, and I would try to pray. I completely let my morality and Christian duty be the indicator of God's approval for me. I thought, well, if I read my Bible, he's going to be proud of me. And if I didn't, he would be disappointed. If I prayed, he would approve. But if I didn't, I would beat myself up because sometimes I didn't really want to pray. And if I didn't, I would think, well, I'm such a bad Christian. If I was struggling with something hard in my life, I would wonder why God would allow it. And then I would think, well, who am I to question him? I just need to be thankful. But I don't really feel that thankful. So maybe I'm not even a Christian at all. I had no assurance of salvation in my life because I was so inconsistent. And I would think, well, maybe I'll just need to try harder. Maybe he'll appreciate my effort. I mean, I'm better than some of my friends, but how much better do I need to be? How could I know? And sadly, I still struggle with this dynamic today. How much is ever enough? And we see that the Pharisees struggled with the same thing. This is why they asked Jesus, hey, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? So the tradition of the elders were these rules that they put together to clearly define what it meant to obey God. And oftentimes, they would completely overshadow God's law. It went beyond obedience to God. Because nowhere in the Bible does it say to ceremonially wash your hands before each meal. Now listen, I'm a big fan of washed hands, and I know you are too, Eric. But we aren't just talking about rinsing dirt off. We are talking about a religious exercise. 
Yes, there were people like priests that God commanded them to wash their hands as an act of purification before going into the temple, but the Pharisees required this religious exercise of everyone before they would even eat a meal. They were doing this and they were adding to the law of God. And they thought that their extra laws made them extra righteous. They felt that they had to earn their acceptance before God by going beyond the very commands of God. But let me ask you this. In this scenario, who is your functional God? Who bears the burden of salvation here? Who does the the saving? Is it God or the Pharisees? Is it God or is it us? And notice this and know this. It will never work. In fact, it does the opposite This way of living actually sows seeds of sin in our lives. Look again at verse 9. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. So the Pharisees, again, these hypocrites, they had a loophole in their traditions that said they could give everything they had. They could give all their money to the temple and still live off of it. But it would negate the ability for any way to lay claim to it. So, for example, if somebody came to me and said, could I borrow your money? Could I borrow some money? I could say, no, it's not mine. I actually gave it to God. Uh, And no one could even touch it, not even your parents. So giving all your money to the church sounds super spiritual. And certainly it secures the admiration of the leaders of your church and many of your neighbors. But there's one small problem. God never told us to do that. But what God did say is that he wanted his people to financially provide for their parents in their old age. And so if you're giving all of your money to the temple, but you're neglecting your parents, you're not being super spiritual. You're actually sinning while feeling good about yourself. And the same dynamic is true for us. If I think that I'm securing God's approval to me by how much I read my Bible, how does that make me feel about people that don't really read theirs? Are they losers? Are they faithless? Is God mad at them? Is he proud of me? Do I feel like I'm a better person than them? Because that doesn't sound spiritual. That sounds prideful and hypocritical, just like Jesus called the Pharisees. And so if change doesn't occur outside in, then something else must have to happen. Real change has to happen inside out. Look again at our passage, starting in verse 18. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus is saying that it isn't the evil in the world. 
the murder, the adultery, the sexual immorality, the theft or the slander that leads to defilement. But it's our defiled hearts that lead to murder, adultery, immorality, etc. The problem is our hearts. Jeremiah 17 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus tells them the problem is not outside of us. It's within us. The problem is us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote, Gradually it is disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through the states, nor between the classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts inside us. It oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overflowed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an unuprooted small corner of evil. That's why the angel told Joseph that Jesus will come to save his people from their sins. Not the sins of the world, not the sins of others, not Roman occupation, but from ourselves, from that small corner of unuprooted evil in our hearts. So what do we do about it? What do we do about the remaining evil? We have clearly seen that there's nothing we can do behaviorally to change our hearts. So how do we do it? How do we experience lasting change, not behavior modification, but actual change? Well, I hate that Mark had to leave because I'm going to tell a story that he told me a couple years ago, and I love this. He told me that when his uh, son Davis was about 18, uh, he had Mark's Toyota Camry, and Davis put diesel fuel into the Camry. And so I love talking about Toyota this morning, as a matter of fact. What a coincidence. Uh, So Toyota hasn't built a Camry that used diesel since 1986. And so that means there is at no point in Davis's life where Toyota made a Camry that you would put diesel fuel into it. So we all make mistakes, and I'm not trying to pick on Davis, but here's my point. What do you think they had to do to Mark's car? Do you think they just poured a bunch of gas into it? until the diesel eventually turned in to gas? No. They had to do a complete system overhaul. And the same has to happen to us. We've got this sin, we've got this evil, and we can't just pour a bunch of goodness into it until it turns good. We need a system overhaul. We need a heart overhaul, a heart exchange. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do for his people. We are told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear that? He made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. That is the great exchange. That is the best exchange. Jesus became sin for us so that in our sin we can become righteous. That is the gospel. Hear the good news of the gospel this morning. Our tainted attempts at getting to God are replaced by Jesus' perfect obedience. Our sinful self-righteousness is exchanged for Jesus' perfect righteousness. Our stain, our dirt, our shame is exchanged for his purity. And where does this great exchange take place? 
Well, it happens on the cross. You know, the cross tells us two equally important things. First, it tells us how, much, how loved we are. That the very God that we've offended by rebelliously trying to make our lives apart from him was willing to take those consequences that we are due and take them into himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and endure our judgment in our place. He tells us it is the joy set before him to forgive us. That's how much he loves you. Second, and just as importantly, it tells us how, how stained our righteous acts are. And if you don't believe me, look at that cross. Look at what it required. Even our best deeds are so stained that they required the death of the righteous one in order to be acceptable in God's sight. Our redemption required the death of God. But this is the thing that makes true Christianity so unique because it makes you holy but it should also make you humble. And when you really begin to understand the gospel, when you get it not at a head level but at a heart level, a couple of things begin to happen. First and ironically, we actually begin to obey the law of God. When we realize that the gospel is one of grace, unmerited favor giving, given to an undeserving recipient by an unobligated giver, we are so blown away that we have God's love when we don't deserve it and we can't lose it because it's a gift, then we actually begin to become more loving. We actually become kinder. We're more generous with our money. We actually want to pray and read our Bibles. We want to spend time with this great king. We want others to know about the gift of grace that we have received. It can melt even the hardest of hearts. And the other thing it leads us to do is to repent and believe the gospel. We're able to go to Jesus about what he said in our passage. We can go to him and say those things you said in verses 21 and 22, the evil, the murder, the adultery, the lying, the theft, etc. We can be honest and say, that is absolutely true about me. But I can't believe you love me. I can't believe you died for me. Please change me. We're able to be honest about the condition of our own hearts and trust him to work in us, and that is called repentance. That's what it means to repent. And not only do we repent of our vile and evil deeds, but we also re repent of our good ones, the things that we do to try to change ourselves because we know that they can't save us. No amount of behavior, morality, or change will actually change our hearts. Only Jesus can as a 19th century hymn writer once wrote, and this is the quote on the front of your bulletin, cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that the gospel is not a set of rules and duties that we have to do, but the gospel announces that the work has been done, that you traveled across space and time to come to us in all of our sin like sheep without a shepherd and to guide us back to yourself, to rescue us and to bring us to yourself. Lord, I pray that we would know that our redemption took your very death, but you love us so much that you were glad to do it. Lord, and I pray that that would change our hearts um, in ways that are almost unexplainable. Lord, thank you for what you've done. In your name I pray.